0: Would you turn in your uh, Bibles, please, to the book of Ruth, the book of Ruth. We come to our last study in this uh, lovely little book, and we come to chapter 4 and verse 13. Chapter 4 and verse 13 of the book of Ruth. Chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Then Naomi took the child and led him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadad. Aminadad fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Amen. And we know God will always bless the reading of his own word. You'll remember uh, that the woman who gives her name to this book, Ruth, was a Moabite woman raised in a pagan idolatrous Gentile culture engaged in the worship of Chemosh, a fertility god, who providentially had come into contact with the true and living God through the family of Elimelech. When her father-in-law, brother-in-law, and her husband died, she returned to Judah, to Judah, to the city of Bethlehem with her mother-in-law, Naomi and there they were exposed to the vulnerability that widows experienced in an ancient culture reduced to poverty but ruth went into the family uh, into the fields to glean to provide sustenance for herself and Naomi gleaning was the ancient form of the social security system the law of god said that uh, when you harvested a field you weren't to go back over it again and re-pick it, but you were to leave uh, what was left in the field that was missed in the field for the gleaners, for the poor to come in afterwards. Providentially, she chooses Boaz's field to whom she eventually, daringly one night, makes a proposal of marriage. And eventually, after settling the matter legally, Boaz uh, marries Ruth. Uh, and we see then in chapter four, in verse thirteen. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. We're not long. We're not sure how long he had to wait uh, before he took her hand in marriage. It might have been that very day after settling the, the matter at the city gate, he went and fetched Ruth from Naomi's lodging, and he married her. Now you will notice the close of the book, In the close of the book. Attention shifts at from Ruth back to uh, Naomi. The focus is on the older woman. We find the women of Bethlehem blessing Naomi, and they say in verse uh, 14, and he went into her, uh, sorry, verse 14, then the woman said to Naomi, "'Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may His name be renowned in all Israel.'" This morning, I want to focus upon the blessing that Naomi received. Now, notice first of all, the nature of Naomi's blessing. Notice very carefully with me what the woman actually say in verse 14. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. Now we looked at the whole concept of the kinsman redeemer in a previous study. His primary function was to uh, to redeem relatives that had fallen in hard times into poverty, perhaps even into slavery, to buy back their land and to uh, protect them and look after them. Now Boaz acted as Ruth's kinsman redeemer. He married her and redeemed her from poverty and potentially from slavery. But it's not Boaz that is being referred to in verse 14. I don't know if you notice that. It's Obed. Just read it again with me. Let's read from verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then, when? Then, when the son is born, then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day, what day, the day the baby was born, this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in all Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is worth more to you than seven sons as has given birth to him. To him. So who is the kinsman redeemer? Who is uh, Naomi's kinsman redeemer? It's not Boaz. It's Obed, the son that is born. Remember according to the Leverite law, the first male child was to be regarded as the dead man's heir. And as the uh, dead man's, Um, uh, was Malon, this son Ruth gave up to Naomi to be her redeemer. That's why the new child was given to Naomi in verse 16 and why she nursed the child. He was technically to be regarded as Malon's son, as Naomi's grandson, and as Naomi's nearest relative, he became her redeemer. So, her long-term future is now secure. Uh, Boaz had redeemed the land. That land would uh, be returned to uh, Obed, and Obed would have the financial means to look after Naomi in her uh, old age. I want you to think about this for a moment. Do you see the change of fortunes in uh, in Naomi's circumstances from the beginning and the end of the book? She says in verse 21 of chapter 1, "'I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back, uh, back empty.'" She went to Moab as a wife. She returned as a widow. She went to Moab as a mother. She returned without children. She went to Moab wealthy, and she returned in poverty. But now her land had been redeemed, restored to her grandson, and her grandson then would have the means to look after her in her old age. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. Her long-term future was now secure. In verse 17, we find the woman of Bethlehem giving the baby the name Obed. Now, that was very unusual. Uh, There's only one other case in all of the Bible where uh, a name is given by somebody outside the family. And you will remember that the relatives of John the Baptist wanted to call him after Zachariah, But seemingly, Naomi didn't object, and Obed was the name adopted. Now, Obed means servant. And it seems these women of the town gave him that name because he would look after, he would serve his grandmother into her old age. So, Naomi's physical needs and her personal security are now catered for in the birth of this baby. No longer would she be vulnerable and exposed to the dangers of widowhood in a primitive culture. She was blessed beyond her wildest expectations in a temporal and a physical way. And that blessing would be a source of great encouragement to her. But there's more. Notice the first part of the blessing there in verse 15. He shall be to you a restorer of life. The NIV says he will renew your life. Now that phrase only appears in two other places in the Old Testament and it refers to one's spiritual life. Psalm 19 verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect reviving the soul, renewing the soul, invigorating the soul. The the law of God, says the psalmist, is the instrument to bring about personal renewal in the life of the believer. And then in Lamentations 1 and verse 16, this is why I weep, says Jeremiah, and my eyes overflow with tears. No one is near me to comfort me, no one to restore my soul. That's the same phrase that's used here. In Ruth, he will be a restorer of life. He will restore you. He will renew you. He will invigorate you. He will bring uh, to you uh, new, fresh uh, 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 supplies of grace. This grandson would be the means of spiritual renewal in the life of Naomi. Before these, perhaps these very same woman in chapter one and verse twenty, the woman you remember, were shocked at her physical appearance when she came back uh, to Bethlehem, and Naomi cries out, "Don't call me my Naomi. Call me Mara." Mara means bitter because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. She had returned dejected and impoverished, not only materially, but spiritually also. She was disturbed, downhearted, downcast, depressed. She was seething over the loss of her husband and sons, and she was shaking the fist at God and blaming God for the loss. But now, through this blessing of a grandson, Her soul is renewed, restored, and refreshed. The blessing she received through the birth of this boy was not only temporal, but spiritual also. I wonder if I asked you this morning, what is your your greatest need? If you could be granted any blessing from God, what would you ask for? Material prosperity, marital harmony, financial security... And those things aren't unimportant as the book of Ruth tells us. But the greatest, the greatest blessing that Naomi received was the revival of religion in her soul. God took this bitter, twisted old saint who had been discouraged by the dark providences of life and he infused into her New, new applications of His Spirit that brought this dark and, and disturbed woman back to a vitality of faith in the God of the covenant. He renewed her and restored her to spiritual freshness. And sometimes, sometimes, through the disappointments of life and through the hardship that we face and through the, the loss of those we love, we can, uh, we can secretly, not outwardly, but secretly become angry with God and our spirits soar. And what we need is this great infusion of spiritual life where God restores our soul. Do you remember David in Psalm 51? Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Where has the joy gone? Sometimes it's gone and we don't even know it's away. That's the first thing then, the nature of Naomi's blessing. It was temporal, yes, but it was spiritual too. Then secondly, notice the the source of Naomi's blessing. The blessing that Naomi enjoyed came from God. Verse 14, then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord. It was the conviction of these women that the blessing that... Naomi had now received was from God himself. They would say with the psalmist, the Lord has done this and it's marvelous in our eyes. Now, the interesting thing about the book of Ruth is that although God is evidently at work in the book, he's only mentioned twice directly. It's it's almost as if God is working behind the scenes. One commentator, Hubbard, writes, the book offers no awesome displays of divine might, no terrifying glimpses of divine being. Yahweh is present, though invisible to human view. Here is God working out his plans and his purposes, but in a way that we don't always see. Now, the two verses that where God is mentioned directly, you actually see this illustrated for us. Look at verse 13. We're told in verse 13, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Who gave her conception? The Lord gave her conception. That the Lord was behind this, but he he didn't create Obed out of the dust of the ground and breathe into his nostrils life. Through the, the normal process of childbearing, God was at work. And then if you turn back to Ruth chapter 1, we we see this in the other verse where God is mentioned directly in verse 6. Chapter 1 and verse 6, then she arose with her dark, with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she heard, heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Well, God didn't rain down manna from heaven as he previously had. He didn't instruct ravens to bring uh, uh, bread, food to, to his people as he did in the time of Elijah through the normal process of sowing, watering, And sunshine, God restored the harvest to Israel through ordinary means. And you see that all through the book, even in the proposal of marriage, invisibly and unknown to us, Ruth just happens to go into the village, uh, into the field of Boaz. He just happens to be her kinsman redeemer. Just happens, happenstance. But God is at work. Uh, Sometimes we say the devil is in the detail. The devil is in the detail. The book of Ruth would tell us that God is in the detail. God's working out his purposes uh, and plans. And even uh, invisibly, invisibly, and through through sinful ways and sinful means, Elimelech had sinned by taking his faith family to Moab in the first place. But if he hadn't gone to Moab, Ruth would never have been brought into the covenant community. Uh, 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 Malon had sinned by marrying a Moabite woman. But if he had never married her, she would never have become acquainted with the worship of Jehovah. The kinsman redeemer, the unnamed kinsman redeemer who refused to redeem. Well, if he had have redeemed no King David, in the future. God is at work. You know, in the book of Esther, the name of God is is never mentioned. I don't know if you realize that. In, In the book of Esther, God's name is never mentioned. And Matthew Henry has this wonderful comment, and he says, although the name of God is not seen, the finger of God is. The finger of God is. And here you see in this family, God working through secondary means, through ordinary means to bring about His purposes and through this sinful actions of His people to bring about His purposes. I love the story that Dale Ralph Davies tells about uh, this uh, black woman in the southern states of America, a believer, and she her husband had died and she's reduced to poverty and she's out on the porch and she's praying to God passionately that He would supply her daily bread, that he would send bread to feed her children. And her next door neighbor was a hardened old atheist. And he says, I'll teach her. And he went and bought bread and he put it on the, the porch and waited for the woman to come out. And she saw the bread and she fell to her knees and she immediately begins to praise and thank God for the bread that he sent. And the hardened atheist, he pokes his head over the fence and he says, oh, he says, God didn't answer your prayer. He says, I bought that bread and delivered it to you. And she says, oh, no, God sent the bread. He only used the devil to deliver it. <laughs> well, well, God is at work, even through our sinful actions, to accomplish His purposes. What a source of comfort that is, to know that, that ultimately we can make no mistakes. Sometimes Christians uh, have come to me and they said, look, something's happened in the past and I have wrecked my spiritual life um, to a point where I'll never recover. Well, that's a very poor view of the sovereignty of God because God is in the detail, working and weaving even through secondary means and sinful means to bring about His purposes. The nature of Naomi's blessing, the source of Naomi's blessing, the means of Naomi's blessing. Undoubtedly, God blessed Naomi in a remarkable way. At the beginning of the book, It seemed, to quote Shakespeare, that she was the victim uh, of the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. At the close of the book, she is blessed beyond belief with this grandson who would secure her future as uh, the inheritor of the redeemed land. It's very much like the book of uh, Job, opening with disaster upon disaster and closing with blessing upon blessing. The only difference, of course, is that Job was without sin and Naomi had sinned sinned because her family had displeased God. Now, it's important for us to notice the human um, instrument that God used to bring about Naomi's blessing. That, of course, was Ruth, her daughter-in-law. Ruth, who refused to return to Moab, to her people, to her home, and to her God who said to Ruth, Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. The same Ruth who humbled herself, identifying herself as poor, who went into the fields after the harvesters to glean corn. The same Ruth who went to the threshing floor and very daringly tickled the toes And made a proposal of marriage to Boaz uh, informing him that he was the kinsman redeemer. The same Ruth, same Ruth, who in obedience to the law of God takes that first child, Obed, and hands him over to Naomi as Naomi's kinsman redeemer. This Moabite, convert to Yahweh is the instrument that brings blessing to the life of Naomi. Now look at what the women say uh, there in verse uh, 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 15. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. He's worth more than seven sons. Now, women in a primitive society were generally devalued. Men were worth more than women in the cultural understanding of the day. And even in biblical thought, you get that. You remember the psalmist says in Psalm 127, sons are a heritage uh, from the Lord, children a reward from Him. So men were generally valued more than women. And yet these women say that Ruth is worth more than seven sons. And it may be seven sons was the, considered to be the ideal family. You remember uh, David was one of seven. Jesse had seven sons, David being the youngest. But here these women say Ruth is worth more than seven. Seven sons. sons. I think back to the beginning of the book when Naomi arrived back in Bethlehem with Ruth. What did she say when she was greeted by those women in Bethlehem? She says, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why, was that true? Was she empty? No, she had an asset of incalculable value that was worth more to Naomi than seven sons. And it may be that these same women, perhaps, in Ruth chapter 4, are actually rebuking Naomi because she failed to see the asset that she had when she arrived. In her despondency and self-pity, in her depression and discouragement, she failed to see the blessing of God in the provision of Ruth. I am empty. I've lost my husband. I've lost my sons. I have nobody left. And all the time there was this woman at her side, an asset worth more than seven sons. She didn't see what God had given her. She didn't appreciate what God had given her by giving her Ruth. She had allowed the tragedy of her life to blur her vision so she couldn't see what was right in front of her nose and how often we are guilty of the same thing. We so concentrate and focus upon the difficulties and the problems, the tragedies and the hurts that in those tragedies and hurts we fail to see the mercy of God. We get up in the morning and, and we we go to prayer and immediately that thorn in the flesh, that thing that's bugging us and bothering us is the focus of our attention and we're talking just about this one thing and we forget to see, stand back and see all the great things that God has done for us. We get so wrapped up in our difficulties that we fail to see the abundance of blessing that he has lavished upon us. Counting your blessings and naming them one by one can be extremely therapeutic. When Gail worked in the Northern Bank in, in Balamoney there was a, a girl who came in, a mixture of emotion, sort of excited and settled all at the same time. And she had just parked her car in the car park and she had opened the door and right beside her was a, a brand new Mercedes. And a gust of wind caught the door, blew the door open, chipped the paint, and left a dent in that new car. And she was really wondering how she was going to break this news to her husband, and uh, she was really fretful. And then the owner of the Mercedes came up and said, it's all right, love. He said, do you not see the rest of the damage that somebody already had driven into him? And she was, she was so focused upon that one little dent that she failed to see the blessing in that the car already had been uh, damaged. She failed to see it. And we're, we're like that, aren't we? we? We just focus on that one thing and we forget all the good things that God has done for us. We need to count our blessings and, uh, and look for the mercy in every situation so the nature of Naomi's blessing the source of Naomi's blessing the means of Naomi's blessing and then lastly the extent of Naomi's blessing in the birth of Obed Naomi was blessed in a way that she probably never realized or fully understood the the book of Ruth is about ordinary people living their ordinary everyday lives we read of no king no prophet no priest just an ordinary family who lived and died, never knowing the full significance of their lives. It's only at the end of the book that we're led into the secret, but Ruth and the rest never knew what that secret was. Verse 17, and the woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, Obed. A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Who was an ancestor of Christ. Now, they had, we have no reason to assume that they ever knew the full significance of their lives. Remember, Boaz was an older man. He probably never saw his great grandson David, let alone know that he would eventually receive the promises of a future Messiah, a greater Davidic king. Naomi was old too. She probably never saw her great-grandson David. And even Ruth, the younger person in the story, uh, probably never saw David either. Remember, David was the youngest of seven sons, and who knows how many daughters. And if you have that many children, it's later on uh, in life that Jesse and uh, his wife had David. And even if, if Ruth, as a very old woman, held This boy in her arms, she never would know of his future greatness. Now, what's the point? Well, God blessed this family and blessed Naomi in particular with a blessing that they never really knew the full extent of. They lived and died never knowing how significant their lives had been. And as we know from Matthew 1, Not only was David a descendant, uh, but Jesus himself came through this royal line. Their great-grandson was Israel's greatest king, but further down the line, the King of kings and the Lord of lords would come. They never knew anything about it. They lived and died, never knowing the full extent of the blessing that God had lavished upon them. I find that tremendously encouraging. So that boy or girl in your family could be the next Charles Spurgeon or the next Amy Carmichael. Your great-grandson could be the next John Calvin who would bring a thorough reformation uh, to these islands. You know, uh, Calvin, it's fashionable now to talk of Calvin, fashionable to write biographies of Calvin. Theologians study his institutes. Preachers study his commentaries. In fact, commentators always use Calvin as their baseline to, bes- uh, to begin their commentary. Socialists study his ethics. Dentists study his principles of, of dentistry. Politicians study his Principles of democracy. Lawyers study his legal writings. But it wasn't always the case, you know. In Geneva, people called their dogs Calvin so that they could shout in the street, Calvin and whistle. And Calvin would turn around and they would be referring to the dog. He was buried in an unmarked grave. He died not knowing the full significance of his life. I think the, the older you get, the less significant you feel. I, I, I think that's true. I think sometimes when you hit your 60s, you say, what have I actually done with my life? But in the providence of God, you don't know what God will do through you. And the influence that is being exercised by people all around the world perhaps, that you have influence. And I would encourage you to take heart. That that child in your Sunday school class that you're teaching and getting up and thinking to yourself, oh oh no, another little bundle of trouble. Trying to think of a nice way of putting a bundle of trouble. You know, that um, awkward, difficult child. That could be the next Charles Spurgeon. Sit in your Sunday school class and you don't know. And that's why, as Robert Murray McShane says, you live to be missed and you live for the glory of God and you put everything into the rearing of your children and you put everything into the teaching of your Sunday school class and your work among the young people and your work among the 50 plus because you never know the extent of the blessing that God will bring about because of your ministry. What an encouragement that is. Amen.